Well, welcome to worship. It is good to see everybody here in the Faith and Arts Center, along with those who are joining us online. Any I haven't met, my name is Bill Birch. I am one of the pastors here, and it is good to gather together and praise God. And I greet you in the name of Jesus, the Savior and Lord, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I did want to highlight one of the pastoral concerns that Reverend Angela lifted up in the prayer just a few moments ago. Uh, This past week, we lost Bob Forrest to death. Many of you know Bob and Martha, his wife. They sit on the front row every week here in the contemporary service. He had had a relatively long illness and went on to be with the Lord this past week. You were so important to him. This service is so important to them. Uh, that he requested his funeral to be in the Faith and Arts Center and to have Matt and the band to lead the music. Uh, This is the first time I've had a funeral in this space in five years that I've been here at Northside. And I just wanted to emphasize to you how important our community of faith is and that you were significant in Bob's life and continue to be important in Martha as well as the family's lives too. Uh, This morning, we are continuing our fall worship series that's entitled, The Faith We Sing. And it is a recognition of how important music is in our personal devotions, as well as our corporate worship. And we are highlighting the hymns of Charles Wesley. Church historians credit John Wesley with starting the Methodist movement, but it was his younger brother Charles who wrote the music that fueled the revival. Uh, scholars estimate he wrote between six and 9,000 poems and hymns. Some go as high as 12,000. And he would write verses on his horse as he was traveling from church to church. And some estimate he wrote 10 lines a day for 50 years. With that much output, the law of averages on quality naturally apply. John Wesley once commented on his brother's hymn writing, and he said, some of them were good, some of them were mediocre, some of them were excellent. And I have no doubt Charles read those lines and yelled, Mom! Well, we are looking at four of Charles Wesley's hymns. We began last week with, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. Next week is, Soldiers of Christ Arise. Then on World Communion Sunday, we're looking at, Come Sinners to the Gospel Feast. Today's featured hymn is, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling. Our scripture lesson comes from 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. A rather lengthy passage Keep up with how many times the word love is used. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us of his spirit, and we've seen and testify that the Father has sent his son to be the Savior of the world. 
If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus, and there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And they have given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Amen. Charles Wesley published Love Divine, All Loves Excelling in 1747, and it was included in a collection with the rather lengthy title of Hymns for Those That Seek and Those That Have Redemption in the Blood of Christ. Today is found on number 384 in the United Methodist Hymnal. And along with Christ the Lord is risen today, hark the herald angels sing, and oh for a thousand tongues to sing, it's among the most beloved and well-known hymns that Charles Wesley ever wrote. And it has an ecumenical appeal. It appears in a number of different denominations' hymnals. And when you read the lyrics, and I, I loved what Matt did with an ancient hymn with a contemporary tune, it covers all sorts of wondrous things within our Christian experience. It talks about life, abundant life, everlasting life. It explores the theological motifs of justification, sanctification, glorification. It begins in heaven, it ends in heaven, and it addresses our earthly sojourn in between. So let's look at each of the stanzas in turn. Stanza one begins with the words, Love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. Wesley's talking about the incarnation, about the Son of God becoming flesh, of Jesus leaving the glories of heaven to come into this world, born as a helpless infant, as a mortal man. John 1, 14 encapsulates the whole story of salvation when it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and full of truth. Last week I talked about that early Christian hymn that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2 that begins with the birth of Jesus and culminates with His death. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Jesus came into this world to seek and to save sinners which means that he came to seek and save you and me. He called the lost in order to be found. And we celebrate that love of God, that pure, unbounded love. 
And part of the prayer that we uttered in the midst of the hymn was, visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. That salvation is God's gift. It's God's grace received by human faith or trust. Salvation by grace through faith. Now, every person here has their own unique journey into faith. And as we share our testimonies with one another, we discover just how rich and varied they can be. For some, you came to the Lord in a very dramatic, emotional, spiritual mountain high point. And you can identify the day, the time, the place, and describe that moment. For others, it was a gradual journey without any major milestones. I recall one saint of God who would share, I don't remember when I wasn't a Christian. However we get there, we recognize that salvation comes by grace through faith. And what we've emphasized over the past months is that once we are accepted as God's child, we're adopted into the family of God. That John Wesley said, there's no religion but social religion. We're bound together as the body of Christ, and part of our mission is to go and make disciples of the nations, to take what God has shared with us and to share it with others. One person defined evangelism as one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. Now, I'd remind you that Charles and John Wesley were ordained priests in the Church of England, a very staid, a very conservative, a very traditional sort of church. And the only place that you were supposed to preach was from behind a pulpit in a consecrated space in the Church of England. But John and Charles' friends, George Whitfield, had begun to practice what he called field preaching, going to where the people were, at mines, factories, outside bars, and proclaiming the gospel. And Charles and Wesley were willing to abandon the old traditions of their church to go and do likewise. We, too, are called field preaching. Let me share a secret that, if you think about it for a moment, will make sense preachers primarily associate with church members. I'm not saying y'all don't need evangelizing too. But if we're going to go out into the world and save others, you're the ones who do it. You are the ones who have the contacts. You are the ones who are going to practice field preaching at schools, at businesses, with co-workers and fellow students at athletic events in those ordinary relationships and daily interactions with others, we have the opportunity to invest, to invite and involve others so that they too can know what it means to know Jesus as Savior and as Lord. The second stanza emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit and in part has the prayer, the invocation Breathe, O breathe thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. In the past, I've talked about how that word spirit in Hebrew is ruach, and in Greek it is pneuma, and it can mean spirit, it can mean breath, it can mean wind. The United Methodist Hymnal has a wonderful prayer to the Holy Spirit, and it invokes God in this way. O God, the Holy Spirit, come to us and among us. Come as the wind and cleanse us. 
Come as the fire and burn us. Come as the dew and refresh us. Convict, convert, and consecrate many hearts and lives to our great good and to thy greater glory. And this we ask for in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Love divine, all loves excelling, describes the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. If you have an opportunity to look it up in our hymnal, it is found in the section with the title, Sanctifying and Perfecting Grace. In Romans chapter 8, Paul rehearses the process of the Christian experience. And in part writes, those God predestined. He also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. John Wesley believed that one of the reasons God had raised up the people called Methodists was to spread scriptural holiness through the world. We use the word holiness, or Christian perfection, or sanctification. It means that when we enter into eternal life into a relationship with God, that's not the ending. It's the beginning. And we're on this journey, change from glory unto glory, till in heaven we take our place. That God wants to conform us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And if we look back over our spiritual journey, and we are not different today than we were a month ago, a quarter ago, a year ago, five years ago, something is wrong. Because the Holy Spirit's work, in part, is to sanctify us, to glorify us, to make us holy. The third stanza talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's not something we address a whole lot in the contemporary church. But as you read the Gospels, as we have during Route 66, it is a clear promise that Jesus made and the church anticipated. The hymn says, Come, Almighty, to deliver. Let us all thy life receive. Suddenly return and never, never more thy temples leave. When you read the Gospels, it was obvious they thought Jesus was going to return within their generation. And as that first stage and age of the church began to die off, they had to revisit their understanding of what Jesus had said. The book of Revelation concludes with Jesus' promise, look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. And John, the author of Revelation, concludes the letter echoing those words, come Lord Jesus. And there's a Greek word, Maranatha, that appears in the New Testament, which simply means, come Lord. And that is the prayer that the church utters in every generation. And there are two things I always say to people whenever I'm preaching or teaching on Revelation and on the second coming. The first is this, Revelation can be very confusing when you read it. It's filled with images and symbols and all sorts of... uh, strange visions, but the message of Revelation can be summarized in two words. God wins. The end is not in doubt. The victory has been won. We are part of a conquering army. God wins. 
And the second thing I always like to say whenever I'm talking about the second coming of Jesus is the recognition Jesus said nobody knows the day or the hour except the Father in heaven. But I can promise you without a shadow of a doubt that one or two things are going to happen during each of our lifetimes. Either Jesus is going to return or we're going to die. I can guarantee that one. And we don't know the day or the hour for either. So the takeaway is to live lives that are prepared to be ready to present ourselves as workers approved so whenever that day comes, and it is coming, we can stand without fear before the Lord because perfect love casts out fear. Many of you have attended funerals at our church, and you'll probably recognize that the traditional gospel reading comes from John chapter 14, where Jesus, in his last supper with the disciples, talks about going to prepare a place for you, that in my Father's house there are many mansions or many homes. But there is another optional passage from Revelation that I oftentimes love to read because I love the promise that it makes, where John talks about the new heaven and the new earth, the descending that God's kingdom is established in its fullness. And then he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Hear these next words and claim them for yourself. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. After talking about the second coming of Jesus, the fourth stanza naturally talks about heaven. In part it says, come almighty to deliver, let us all thy life receive, suddenly return and never, never more thy temples leave. The faith we sing offers the promise that we are heaven bound. And we sing hymns like, Shall we gather at the river? On Jordan's stormy banks I stand, Swing low, sweet chariot, Marching to Zion, Soon and very soon, And when we all get to heaven. Wesley talks about, Finish then thy new creation, As we anticipate that heaven and that earth. Last week I talked about that hymn that we sing, Marching to Zion. And in part it says we're marching through Emmanuel's ground of fairer worlds on high. That we are a part of that conquering army and the victory has been won and we are marching through ground that has already been won by our Savior and by our Lord. And then Wesley has this image of God's elect standing before the throne, praising God and casting our crowns before him. Revelation chapter 4 says, The 24 elders fell down before the one who was seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and they have their being. And Wesley culminates the hymn by talking about how we are lost in wonder, love, and praise. 
it's little wonder. The love divine all loves excelling is one of Wesley's best known and beloved hymns. We've seen it rehearses the Christian experience of life, abundant life, everlasting life. It talks about those theological motifs of justification, sanctification, glorification. And it begins in heaven and it ends in heaven and it addresses our earthly sojourn in between. Here again the words. Claim them as your own. Love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion. Pure unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.